and welcome to episode three of the Education for a Better World podcast. I'm Mike Soskal. And I'm Diane Smokorowski. Each week, we will bring you conversations with some of the most dynamic thought leaders in education. This week's episode is sponsored by GoToScience, a tool that allows our youngest learners the opportunity to learn by going on adventures without leaving their classroom. We know that education will be the driving force for a bright, optimistic future. On each show, we'll introduce you to innovative ideas, we'll stretch your thinking, and help you see ways to empower students to affect positive change in the world. We are thrilled that you are coming along with us on this journey. Let's dream big. Today's guest is George Colliff. He is the executive director of Empatico, a free tool for connecting classrooms. Growing up in Beirut during the Lebanese Civil War, George witnessed firsthand what happens when people don't develop an appreciation for the other. He's dedicated his career to helping strengthen communities and supporting civil discourse across lines of difference. George, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Diane. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your experiences during the Lebanese Civil War? How did that shape how you view human connections and relationships? Sure. I mean, look, I was, I was, uh, I'll reveal my age. I was born uh, in November 1974, um, and uh, it was exactly a month before the outbreak of a 17-year civil war. So my childhood was spent in a war. Um, I had no basis of comparison. So when you're growing up in a war, that is your life. Um, and, uh, one thing that I observed and that was around me is I, I heard all these stories about how Lebanon used to be this melting pot. It used to be this, this place where, um, diversity and was celebrated and, and, and people from different communities and different religions came together in, in ways that was unique in the Middle East at the time. Um, and specifically, if the, the, the geography of Beirut was such where there was East Beirut, which, is, which was predominantly the Christian area. And then there was West Beirut, which was predominantly the Muslim area. In between these two neighborhoods was the central business district. And this is where Sunnis, Shiites, Maronites, and Druze could come together and transcend those sectarian differences and form that overarching, elusive Lebanese national identity. So it was physically in that space where people could be Lebanese. Unfortunately, that central business district was the front line of the fighting, so it was most destroyed. So no longer did communities have that common ground to come to to discover that transcendent identity. And during times of the fighting, what happened is people retreated to their own tribes. And anytime a group feels threatened or, or there's a sense of fear, and we see it in this country, in the United States, the natural human tendency is to retreat to your tribe for comfort, for support, for reinforcement, whatever the case may be. I grew up Christian in Lebanon, and I never remember religion being that important until the worst times of the fighting. And suddenly during those times, my grandparents and aunts and uncles and my own parents started putting up crosses in their house. Suddenly we would start going to church. For some reason, being Christian became more important during the time of the fighting. 
when it became worse. So there's this dynamic that I observed where um, essentially people retreated to their tribe to survive. And in a way, what helps, um, what enables survival during the war is precisely what disables post-war harmony and reconstruction. Because you're asking people to let go of allegiances that were so important to them during the worst time of fighting. And to reach out to some larger transcendent identity that was largely absent during that time when you were trying to survive. You grew up in the space that was kind of, um, what well, was traumatic. And it was also a, a place where you saw a division of people then try to reconnect. As the reconstruction came through, where did you see hope in some of that? It's a great question. There was a lot of, I remember during the reconstruction, the actual process of reconstructing the downtown area and who to involve in that process and how to get those voices in was very important. And one example that comes to mind is, you know, in the United States, you typically have war memorials, right? So there, if you go to DC and you take your school trip to DC with your students, you know, you can see the Vietnam War Memorial, the Korean War Memorial, the World War II Memorial, whatever it may be. And, and wars have different meaning to different people. And when, when, when they were thinking about rebuilding the downtown, uh, the central business district in Beirut, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, there was consensus that there needed to be some war memorial to remember the 17 years of fighting. But the war meant different things to different communities. So there was a lot of discussion around, well, wh what type of memorial do we want to erect or put up there, you know, if it meant such different things to different people? And um, the, the memorial that won the bid was, there's this statue in the middle of downtown Beirut, in the middle of the central business district, called, it was in Martyrs Square. And it's a statue of, of a person, a martyr, like in the square. Now that statue was gutted with bullet holes during the war. And, and I think it was really interesting because what they decided to do is just keep that statue up. Mm. And it, was, it, it is what it is. People can look at that statue and see the bullet holes and think victory, or they could look at that and think you know, defeat, or they can think, you know, I don't wanna repeat this. But the beauty of that was, it was in a neutral space and it wasn't prescribing meaning, you know? And I think there's, there's something to be said about creating safe spaces in neutral territory that don't prescribe meaning. And, and, but you wanna do it in a way that facilitates and invites meaningful discussion, you know? So in a way that statue is provocative because you see it and you think, oh my God, what is this? You know, and then it, it, it prompts that discussion that you want people to have. It's a healthy discussion to have. I think that is such a great transition into what this means for education, right? Because that's, that's, we want to take this idea of, of shared humanity and how we bring people together and look at how it plays out in the classrooms and how we can use that to make the world a better place. And the idea of, of creating safe spaces where people can come together and learn and play and find that shared humanity with, with each other without having to worry about um, the, the tribalism that's going on outside is exactly what teachers try and create in our classrooms. 
I, Diane, I know that you are a master at this, that um, this, is, this is really in your wheelhouse. Could, could you spend a little time talking about how you do this for students? Well, I believe that the first thing we can do is provide opportunities for students to have purposeful play and purposeful exploration around the conversation. So, for example, we have a project uh, that's, that happens every December called the Gingerbread STEM Project. And basically, it's a challenge that we put out to students to investigate the goods and services of their own community and determine which of these they feel is the most important. From there, we ask them to construct that in gingerbread, which really, technically, if you have little bitty people, it's milk cartons and you know cereal boxes with graham crackers glued to them but then they put all the sweets of gooey sticky things that you can imagine so there is some exploration play and engineering that goes along with that so there is that fun factor but the challenge is after you create your goods and services out of these constructed models then we want you to connect with another classroom to see how they constructed their community. And then we talk about the things that are similar and different. And, oh, you have a target. We have a target. Or you have a water, um, a water tower. We don't have that. Or you live by the ocean. What goods and services are available there that aren't in my space? And when we start to figure out the, there's so many similarities in our worlds versus those differences, then there's this coming to the same table of conversation. And then we can ask some deeper questions. Maybe your parents uh, do work at the ocean quite often, but has that been a good thing for your community? Has it been a struggle? Do you still have to import things? Does my community actually support yours and vice versa when it comes to restaurants? That gives a chance to have some bigger conversation and it's pretty magical. Technology has given us the opportunity, as, as Diane mentioned, to see beyond our classrooms now uh, and to connect with different cultures that our students often wouldn't meet in our towns. I teach in a very rural community. There's not a whole lot of diversity here, but I know that when my students graduate, they're gonna go into a world where, you know, global connections and, and communication are, are uh, normal in the business world. I met Daniel Lebetsky, who's the founder of Kind, um, Kind Snacks, and we shared a passion for building bridges across lines of difference and helping uh, people discover a shared humanity and um, coming from my upbringing in Beirut and we were really looking at ways to combine the best of technology with the best of humanity to expand the boundaries of where and from whom kids learn. I mean how powerful would it be if if we give kids the opportunity to have those virtual field trips to neutral territory where they can play and discover and learn together and expand their horizons um, so what we've done at Empatico is we've combined a video conferencing technology with a matching algorithm to match classrooms with content around activities that are around universal topics. So if you think about things like weather and places you play and festivals in your community and geography, um, these, are, these are all topics that every child, regardless of their race, religion, national origin, would experience in their life. And by matching classrooms around these topics, you're really um, um, engaging in these universal topics with people from different perspectives who you otherwise would never have the opportunity to meet. And if you make, it, if you make the technology and the interface easy enough for teachers, create that like frictionless one-stop shop 
easy to use platform, then it becomes super easy for teachers to integrate this into their already busy day and enhance curriculum that they're already teaching by giving them this window to the world as they're teaching it. I totally and completely agree on all of that. Uh, my favorite component is the ease of use. It's very simple. You log in, you talk to your other partner, and you're connected. We don't have to download any extra software, any, any, you know, there's not a lot of hurdles to jump through in order to make these connections happen. What is a great story that you've seen come out of these connections? Uh, there's so many. I was just in a classroom. You know, there's so many great stories, but I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just going to pick the most recent one because I was in a classroom uh, just the other day um, on Tuesday, and it was a private Jewish school in New York City, um, and they were connected with a classroom in St. Louis. And the activity was around um, something involving um, landmarks in your local community. So um, the school in New York was talking about the Statue of Liberty and what it meant and what it symbolized. And the school in St. Louis was talking about the St. Louis Arch and what it symbolizes. And, and you know, um, that's where the conversation started. And like so many conversations, when it starts somewhere, it leads somewhere. And, and so there was this, this conversation about the arches. And, and, and during that conversation between St. Louis and New York, there were a lot of those like me too moments. Like, yes, I share that. I share that, you know. And, and at one point, um, one of the, the, so there was some whispering in the classroom in St. Louis. And the teacher then went to the students in St. Louis and, and was asked, you know, was inquiring, what were they curious about? And what they were curious about is they were asking what, um, they, they, they asked it in a very innocent way because the Jewish um, hat on your head, right? So they said, they said, why are the students wearing those hats on their head? And, um, and it was really, it came from a really place of curiosity. And it was fascinating just to see that discovery because clearly in this community in St. Louis, there aren't many Jewish people. And without that interaction that started in a safe place around, you know, um, landmarks in your neighborhood, it created that, it paved the way to have a more sensitive conversation. When you look at overcoming um, intolerance and, and prejudice, knowing someone and having interactions with someone that is different than you is one of the things that correlates most highly with being tolerant of others. For, for those children that have never met someone who's Jewish before, now they can say, I have friends who are Jewish, right? And mean it because they've, they've had this interaction with people. Mm -hmm. And when they hear something that's anti-Semitic or whatever in, in their community, it gives them a different context to say, no, that's not right. I, I know from personal experience that that's not right. Before we continue with the show, we'd like to take a few seconds to share with you the sponsor that's made today's episode possible. GoToScience is an absolutely incredible tool for teachers. When Beth and Curtis take children exploring on an island in the middle of the ocean, fossil hunting in Wyoming, or into the Australian outback, they allow classes to choose their own scientific adventure. A few weeks ago, a second grade teacher I know could not stop talking about how much her students were learning and how much fun they were having doing it. You know, Mike, I've experienced the same thing. Teachers who are using this absolutely love it. 
That's why I'm excited to share that we are going to be giving away a free year-long subscription to one of our lucky listeners. When you hear a quote or an idea on one of our shows that you really like, tweet it out and make sure to tag us in it using our Twitter handle, at Ed4BetterWorld. That's at Ed, the number four, Better World. On our first show in January, we'll choose at random someone who has tweeted something from the show and tagged us. And we will be giving that listener a one-year subscription to go to science. The more you tweet, the more chances you have to win. There's something that Diane and I would like to share with you that we are really passionate about. You know, we both love being in the classroom with our students. We get just as excited, though, to work with teachers and help them create magic with their students. Diane has been the keynote speaker for conferences all over the country. She's run classes and workshops for thousands of teachers. Anyone who has spent time with Diane will tell you that there is something magical about learning with Mrs. Smoke. Mike always leaves those in attendance optimistic and inspired about what is possible in education. He has worked with teachers all over the globe, from Dubai to Oxford University to school districts and conferences around the United States. Diane and I would love to work with your teachers or to speak at your conference. We've often facilitated workshops together to help teachers create global learning experiences for children, build professional networks, and use project and problem-based learning as tools to make learning relevant and meaningful. We also have our own areas of passion that we'd love to share with your group. To learn more about what we can offer or to send us an inquiry, visit the podcast website at edforbetterworld.com. We really hope to see you in person soon. Now let's return to the show. What I also like about the story is that, you know, teachers, when they log into the website, there's these lessons already set up to help them get started. So they don't have to start from trying to figure out what they want to talk about. And whether you're doing the weather or you're doing the monuments, there's just enough hint of ideas. Plus, you know, there's a structure if you need more support, but it's just enough to get those wheels turning for teachers to say, oh, you know, we do have the St. Louis Arch in our backyard. And we've got, you know, the Statue of Liberty. That's kind of incredible. And if you happen to be in another part of the world, you might have another uh, landmark that would be quite interesting. And I applaud, I applaud that feature so that teachers have a place to begin. Which of those lessons do you see teachers jumping in on first? Or does it matter? Um, there's, there's a, there's a lesson, which is a get to know you, which is a lighter touch. Um, and it doesn't involve as much of like, you know, a preparation around a curriculum or a topic. It's just a simple get to know you, which is essentially like a gateway. It's like an introduction to, you know, the, the, the possibility and potential that a virtual exchange, um, can have, can have. And then the idea is with that bite size like introduction, they come back for more. And you know, we've we've seen we've seen a lot of growth. We 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 really want to scale this globally and make it as easy as possible. So we're working so closely with teachers like the two of you to understand what works, what doesn't work, and we have a team of engineers that's ready to sort of continue to enhance existing features, add new features in that like endless quest to make it as seamless as possible and as user-friendly as possible. I know in my own global connections journey, for me, it, it very much started out as something exciting that I could do to, to get kids excited about learning and, and coming into the classroom. But what soon, what soon transitioned for me and what really made the biggest difference is when I stopped looking at it as something extra 
to do in my classroom. And I started looking at it as a way to do what I was already doing better. So I would take the, the math that I was teaching and think, you know, if we were able to do this with other kids some in some other part of the world, what would that look like? What would the most incredible lesson look like that we could do together? And how can we make it happen? Or if I was teaching social studies, how could we, how could we take these social studies concepts and turn them into a global lesson? When that happened, it really started, my kids started learning more deeply because they cared more. We know that, that emotional connection is so, so important for retaining learning. And the same thing that they were learning out of a textbook previously, they were now retaining and really internalizing because it meant more to them. Diane, you've seen things like that happen in your, with the classes that you've worked with also, right? Absolutely. It started with you, Mike, to be honest. <laughs> My first global collaboration was in 1996, but the first time we connected was in 2008. And my students were reading Night by Elie Wiesel. And I said, you know, it would be really powerful where I live in Kansas. There's not a lot of connections to people who have uh, knowledge about the Holocaust. And Mike and I were talking on a social media program. And he said, hey, you know, my grandfather was somebody who actually freed people at, a, at an internment camp over in Europe. I said, really, that'd be interesting. And he said, I said, that'd be great. He said, would you want to connect? They, they Skype. And I said, sure, let's make that magic happen. And that's where we started working together on some of these things. But I can tell you that as I have worked to find experts, because I will tell you there is somebody who's passionate about everything. There is someone who's passionate about post-it notes. There's someone that's passionate about soap. There's somebody who's passionate about volcanoes. If I can take someone who is already passionate about something that we're covering in the classroom, well, passion's contagious. And if that inspires them to think of new careers or new connections or deeper questions they want to ask, then that's what I'm doing to help them to be better critical thinkers. I'm relatively new to the education space. And one thing that sort of surprised me and slightly disappointed me is um, the amount of rebranding required for social emotional learning as a whole. It just seems like it's too, in my conversations with teachers and administrators, it's just too often seen as a nice to have as opposed to like an essential or the essential ingredient. I mean, it's, it's like teachers are so busy, you know, with every minute of their day preparing for either a test or some sort of like, like there isn't the appreciation that, that teaching needs to be about more than math, science, reading and writing. You know, what about curiosity and perspective taking and values and critical thinking? And, and to me, you know, as a, as a relatively new parent, like those are the most important things. I mean, we have the facts at our fingertips. Look at Google, look at, you know, and, 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 and you know, do we really need to be memorizing math and memorizing history? What about like the curiosity and hunger to learn? What about how you work with other kids and how you work on a team? And, and to me, those are equally, if not more important ingredients to succeed in tomorrow's world. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plug a, a great book, uh, Teaching in the Fourth Industrial Revolution, which was just written <laughs> by, uh, by five other Global teach, Teacher Prize finalists and myself. Really, that, that question that you're asking, George, is something that we dug into deeply. Because one of the things that we felt as, as practitioners in this uh, evolving technological world is that so much of the innovation in schools that, that is being pushed right now is being pushed for economic purposes to produce great workers and, uh, and strong economies. And all of that is important, 
But if we lose sight of the things that make us human, if we lose sight of the things that education has always been based in, the relationships and the humanity and the empathy, then, then that innovation has unintended consequences, which are, uh, which are detrimental to society. It drives equity gaps further and further apart. And so we really looked at how, how is it possible to keep schools technologically relevant, and at the same time, find the intersection of where that connects with all of those, those social emotional learning skills that we just talked about, and seeing each other as, as human. And how can we teach kids to see technology as a way to make the world better, rather than a way just to make money? I ran a program to support social entrepreneurs in the Middle East. And it was interesting there because many of the entrepreneurs were stepping in to fill in voids for goods and services that are typically provided by the government, but aren't in those situations. So, you know, whether it's garbage collection or certain like education related initiatives that are trying to bridge the gap between you know, what schools and universities are producing and what employers are demanding to sort of address that unemployment issue. Um, I, think, I think social entrepreneurship plays an important role in melding like, like a sort of a business way of thinking and the acumen associated with that and the discipline with, a, with, with, with the drive towards social impact. I would add that I think that's the reason why tools like Empatico or others that are like that are so critical to have. You've done some research as an organization to see how many teachers around the globe are actually using video conferencing in the classroom. And the numbers are not high. Am I right to say that? That's right. That's, that, that's right. I mean, we often say like our biggest competition um, is teachers doing nothing. Like it's, it's those teachers, like if we really want to scale, it's, it's one thing to convince existing teachers who believe in this, who are sort of piecing it together with a network they've created on Twitter and then emailing to figure out what they want to do and then um, using Skype or Zoom to have the video connection. Um, you know, for that audience, you know, we can, we can sell, a, sell Empatico as a value because it creates a one-stop shop for all those things. But there's a much larger segment of teachers who aren't doing anything, you know. So there it's about convincing them of the value of virtual exchange and expanding their kids' horizons. And then Empatico becomes the tool to do that. And that's been our passion, Mike's and mine, for over a decade now, is that we find that most teachers don't think this way. It's a different way of lesson planning. And I, I say quite often that there's these three questions that I encourage teachers to do. First, what is it you have to assess? That's the easy setup for them if they are saying, well, is this an add-on? So now these are things you're already doing. What experiences do you want them to have? So I really want them to consider what do you want the students to remember when they're 40, mm -hmm. not just for that test that you're going to do on Friday. Mm -hmm. And then three is who do they need to talk to? Mm -hmm. And if you want to engage in true democracy. I think you need to teach children how to have a conversation and definitely set up a conversation with people that are different from yourself. And I just applaud the fact that this is also the mission of Impactico because this is our mission to see every teacher connect. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll throw in that one of the other things that I love is that it's the price that I can afford as a teacher, right? <laughs> it's, it's free. It's the only, right? That's, that's about all I can afford. So, it's yeah, free I mean, and it'll always be free. And Look, I mean, I mean, Diane, to your point too, it's, it's, um, I mean, 
look at the adult world we're living in. I mean, social media is doing more to divide us than unite us by creating these echo chambers where we surround ourselves with like-minded voices, with people who share identical political views, identical values, and the opportunity to have constructive conversation and civil discourse across lines of difference has all but disappeared. So how can, how can, we, how can we exercise those muscles in civil discourse? I think that's the essential question. Yeah. And I love the fact that right now you would, your program is set up for grades one through five. Right. And your research, can you share a little bit about that of why you chose those grade levels? Yeah, I mean, you know, when we were, when we were doing the research um, and doing the neuro, and talking to some neuroscientists, I mean, it's really two things. One is kids at that age are apparently old enough at seven where they're, where they're asking questions about who they are and where they fit into the world. Um, but they're still young enough where they haven't yet formed all those stereotypical default assumptions about people who are different. So they're beautifully open in it to influence in ways that start to close later in life. Um, the, the, the second thing which surprised me is when we mapped the space of like other virtual exchange platforms, there, there was nobody operating in this space. So it was like, wow, you know, here's this like, the science is suggesting that you get your best return on your investment if you focus in this age group, yet like there were virtual exchange platforms for middle school and high school, but almost none, you know, at this age group. I really like the fact that that's a target for you because, I, and it may sound a little bit like Miss America for me, but I really believe that if we can give students the opportunity to connect and value different voices at a young age, then they won't make the same mistakes when they're older. We're already seeing some shifts in society from when, you know, I was, I'm just two years older than you are, George. So, <laughs> Things that we saw in the 1980s were okay and we thought were silly and funny or whatever are completely, they were bad then, but they're really bad now. You're starting to see those shifts uh, of happening and they don't happen quickly, but I think it is happening because people have different values as young people and as they age. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that's the, you know, we, we talked about social media before. I think that's the positive uh, aspect of connection. Right. So, you know, as, as much as people are being siloed by their political views, there's also the opportunity to connect with people in, in different parts of the world uh, instantly, not just through video conferencing, but, but to have meaningful conversations on Twitter or to be in the same Facebook group. And, and I think that younger, the younger generation that has grown up with that, they very much see humanity differently than those who were in isolated communities growing up and, and didn't have access, access to those kinds of tools. Every new technology comes with ethical choices that have to be made and, and ethical dilemmas that we have to fight through. And we're seeing, we're seeing that, you know, the technology evolves faster than our, than our ethics and our morality does. As teachers, we have this huge role to play in order to be able to help children navigate that so that they build the foundation that they'll need when they get out into a technological world, you know, after they graduate. So George, what's your wish for the future? I would love to see Empatico in to be the sort of go-to tool to enhance curriculum and be that virtual, like those virtual field trips around the world um, in, you know, every classroom around the world with, you know, internet connectivity and a laptop. And um, for those that don't have internet connectivity or don't have the hardware, a partnership with, you know, a Facebook or a Cisco or an HP 
where it's them providing the hardware or the connectivity and it's us providing the meaningful connections. Our last question, George, is one that we give to all of our guests. In one or two sentences, what would you do to change education to make the world a better place? I, I think education plays such an important role in sparking that curiosity and hunger to learn. And if you can just graduate or advance students with that like hunger and curiosity to learn, to me, that's the most important thing because that's the foundation for everything. Thank you for joining us today. Please visit our website at edforbetterworld.com. That's ed, E-D, the number four, betterworld.com for show notes and to learn more about inviting Mike and I to lead a workshop for your teachers. And don't forget to check the other podcast-related goodies. We want to thank George Colliff for being our guest today. Credit for music on the show goes to Midair Machine. Join us next week as we discuss how uncovering unsung heroes can change lives with Millican educator Norm Kennard and his former student, Megan Felt. The story of the project that unfolded in their Kansas classroom became the basis for a book that has influenced educators around the world. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and that it gave you some new ideas and perspectives. Through education and action, we can create a better world. Until we're together again, continue to dream big. And affect positive change. <laughs>